This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and it's uh, fantastic to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 18 if you haven't already done so. Luke chapter 18, there should be some Bibles around the room if you need a copy underneath the seats there in front of you. Uh, this is our week 82 um, in our time that we've spent going through this wonderful book of Luke. Uh, Luke was a book written by a guy named Luke who was a highly respected historian both within Christianity as well as to the secular world. A uh, highly respected man, a very educated man. He was a doctor, a physician, um, and he wrote this according to his own words as he gave this historical account uh, in chapter 1, he said that he wrote these things so that we would know with certainty the things concerning Jesus Christ. And so this is our hope as well as we approach Luke and in chapter 18 today, but Luke in general, uh, that we would understand the real Jesus, that we would have certainty concerning who Jesus is. Jesus changes everything. Knowing Jesus changes us, and so we want to give ourselves to this study of, of learning more about Jesus. So as we do, let's pray once more, ask God for help. Um, Father, Lord, um, there's, a, there's people who come from many different uh, mornings today, um, some very distracted, haphazard, um, lots of tension, lots of anxiety and fear. Lord, others have been more poised and collected, and, and, and uh, it's been a slow, restful, peaceful if not even blissful, Sunday morning. Um, and we have all the reason to be distracted or to not be focused. Uh, and so regardless of where we might fall and in, in how we feel emotionally or spiritually or even physically this morning, Lord, help us um, zone in here and focus on your truth um, and so that we can be changed by the preaching of the Word of God this morning. Lord, help me as I do my best to share the gospel with my friends. Um, and would you, Lord, please help us all as we hear this good news of who you are from Luke 18. Lord, change us and work in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So context here for where we are. Uh, you know, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem uh, where he's going to be crucified. And along the way, he's teaching He's healing, he's performing miracles, and he speaks to different groups of people, um, and we've got record of this all the way through our time in these 82 weeks. Uh, even last week, he addressed a particular group of people, uh, the self-righteous person uh, who judged others. Um, it's a, it's, as I preached and as I man, it, studied it, it's like, man, so often I think I find myself right here in that sort of crowd, or self-righteous, and the fruit of that is being judgmental towards others. Deep conviction personally from, from last Sunday. And the big idea there was for us not to place our own uh, hope in our own performance and not place our hope in our own righteousness. Rather, we're to learn to place our hope more and more into the finished work of Jesus, into the performance of Jesus Christ and in His righteousness, like to, to place our trust and hope and confidence in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and not 
our own righteousness. You see, there's a humble trust in Jesus that is necessary for us to cling to his righteousness alone. Like to, to, to grab hold and let our, give our life to his righteousness alone requires that we have a humble trust. And equally true is there's often this sort of religious swagger and pride and the resulting judgment of others when we tend to cling to our own self-righteousness rather than Christ's righteousness. And Jesus teaches on this. Remember the tax collector? Uh, Woe, you know, like, uh, have mercy on me, oh God, I'm a sinner. Uh, as opposed to the proud Pharisee, um, he's, he's teaching on this. And he does so even in our text today. He continues right here on the heels of that in chapter 18 and verse 15. So let's get to work here. He says, uh, Luke records this. Now there were, they were bringing even infants, babies to Jesus that he might touch them, that he might hold them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked either the child or the parents or family. Uh, they, they warned them, I guess, like, don't do that. Don't, don't put your kids near Jesus. I don't know what that was like. I don't know. But then Jesus called him, called to them, uh, called them to him, saying, "Let the children come to me. Don't hold them back. Don't hinder them. For such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not open uh, themselves to the kingdom of God like a child, whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a child, whoever does not accept or receive the kingdom of God like a child, shall not." Enter it. To place our hope in Jesus and his righteousness requires humility and trust. Humble trusting, much like a baby. And Jesus here is taking them and he's blessing them. He's praying over them. And they would humbly go to him like most infants. Humbly go to him. By the way, um, I love to hold like the babies of the Axis during potlucks while the parents serve their food or whenever, like right here, like, okay, sure. Um, no, just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I love it. I, I really enjoy it. But a secret to holding a baby, all right, if you're nervous about that, a secret is when you receive a child that doesn't know you, and if you look anything like this, the baby's going to freak out. So what you have to do is quickly turn the baby around, hold them just underneath their shoulders, pat their bottom, and let them look at anything other than you, right? And it's good to, like, stay pretty close to family, and you're just like, that way the child sees them, and you just got, you've got the pat, the rock, and the sway, kind of like, you develop this gift over four children, right? Um, and uh, that's a, you know, free little nugget from the text today. Um, but Jesus says here, the humble, not the proud, will be in the new kingdom. It's the trusting, not those who trust in themselves, will be in the new kingdom. And again, reflecting from last week's sermon, those who trust in themselves and their own righteousness and their deeds and their works and, and their service and their giving, those who place their confidence in this and they find their identity in these things and their worth and their value and their righteousness, they will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. It will not happen. The kingdom of God is for those who, like the tax collector last week, God have mercy upon me, a sinner beating his chest, pleading for mercy on the outskirts of the temple area. 
The kingdom of God is for those who, like that tax collector, know that they're not good enough. Good enough? Are you kidding me? It's, the kingdom of God is for those who know that they sin and they have, that they are a sinner, that they don't have it all together. They're so far from having it all figured out and all together. The kingdom of God is for that person. The kingdom of God is for the person who knows that they are so far from good. The person who knows that they need mercy. They don't want justice. They do not want what's fair. They're aware of that. So they know they need mercy. And they're humble. And they're trusting like a child. And they ask for mercy. The kingdom of God is for this person. And God gives the mercy to them. He gives the kingdom to them like he always does. Jesus says in in John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. Those who are humble and trusting in him, why would he ever send them away? That's why he came is to receive such people. You see, it's the humble and those who are aware that will be justified, made righteous. They will be delivered by Jesus into the very presence, the very eternal presence of God. So family, let's pray for this humility. Let's let's pray against this swagger and pretending in our strutting that we've got it all figured out. Let's pray against that and let's Let's pray for humility. Let's pray often asking God to help us trust him more and believe him more. We must be praying for these things. So right after this dialogue with these disciples and the rebuke and the babies and all this stuff, this happens in verse 18. A ruler, a religious leader, he's got a lot going for him, right, in regards to uh, Judaism, um, the Jewish faith, like he's, he's somebody uh, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit or gain or have eternal life? What must I do? And Jesus said to him, hold on a second. First, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Do you really know what you mean when you call me good? Are you aware that only God is truly Good. Now here, Jesus isn't denying his deity. He's not denying his goodness. He's not denying the fact that he is the son of God. Jesus is calling attention to this in order to avoid this empty flattery of just tossing around a a, a simple phrase. He's saying, listen to yourself. Listen, calling me good. Oh, how I wish you believed this. Oh, how I wish you believed I was good. And then he speaks to this religious ruler. You know the commandments. You're brilliant in the commandments. You're a ruler of the commandments. You are such a religious leader in all these things. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your parents, your father and mother. To inherit life, what must you do? You must be perfectly righteous. You've got to do right all the time. You've got to be perfect in the things of the law, and then you will certainly be accepted into the very presence of God. So what Jesus does here is he's answering this ruler's question in a traditional Jewish way by talking about the need to keep the commandments, specifically the Ten Commandments, focusing on the second half of the Ten Commandments, which are, of course, more visible, uh, more obvious. It's easier to discern and, and test a person's outward behavior, but Jesus We know, and God uh, for sure is concerned not with the outward appearance only, the, the pretending or the looking,
but he's concerned with the being. He's concerned with who we are underneath all that performance in our heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. When you hear that, that should trouble you. No matter how long you've been a Christian, that should, that's, a, that's a heavy truth. Adultery. You know, don't commit adultery. Matthew 5, Jesus says, you've heard it uh, said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Adultery. Murder. Well, he says in Matthew 5, you've heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother. You've been angry? Maybe once? Say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, you ever said something that was an insult? Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Be perfect. But we know that we can't do this. Uh, We haven't done this. We'll never do it perfectly. But this ruler, he, see, he sees things differently than Jesus did. Verse 21, you, you ever uh, been, a, I'm sure, I don't know if you've done this, but you've seen it on movies and maybe you've been around somebody does this, when they uh, taking a drink of water and then all of a sudden there's just, and there's just like, they spew the water out, out of laughter or shock. That didn't happen, but I can't help but think that that could have happened in this next phrase. Um, You're supposed to obey the law perfectly. And then verse 21, he said, all these things I've kept from my youth, right? And that's like if Jesus ever laughed out loud or spewed his drink or coughed or gasped, like, are you, (laughs) excuse me, what? Um, It could have been here, but Jesus doesn't do that. But it's fun to think about that kind of thing. Um, This this man, this ruler, though, he, he did what we so often do today. You see, it's not that he willingly lied. I don't think he intentionally lied to the face of Jesus. It's that he tweaked and manufactured the law. He, he, he tweaked what God constantly requires. He, he modified the law in such a way where he could obey his version of the law. In other words, he was blind to the true law, what was truly required and what was that holy standard and along the way this man he changes the law of God of what is required in order to accommodate his sin in order to accommodate his imperfections and his inability to follow the law perfectly he couldn't live up to the righteous requirement of the law nor could he handle the guilt right of of failing in his efforts and so he changed what God said he he changes in his mind what God means And here we have self-righteousness again. It blinds us from seeing the truth. It blinds us from seeing who we really are. Self-righteousness blinds us from reality. This is such a danger. This is such a danger for every one of us. And I'm so afraid that we do this often. Rather than trusting in the goodness of Jesus, we change what's required so that we can still trust in ourselves so that we don't have to truly trust in God or trust in Jesus. After all, it's difficult to admit that we're needy. It's really hard to admit that we need help. It's difficult to trust. 
But what we need is to believe and trust and look to Jesus Christ. We need to hear uh, Scripture on this very thing, like Romans chapter 8, the first 11 verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus in His righteousness, living in His righteousness, that covering them. But there is condemnation for those who are living outside of Christ Jesus and His righteousness. Those who are self-righteous, there is condemnation. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life, this is Romans 8, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ, set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law that has been weakened by the flesh, what it could not do. He did it this way. By sending his own son, like you and me, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, those who have God living in them, those who have been born again and made righteous through Christ's righteousness, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. They've been made alive by God. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life And it's peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to Him. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are self-righteous cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness, because of Christ's righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, if if the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit that dwells in you. This is what we've got to be focused on, not our self-righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ and what that means for us. We must be praying for these blinders to fall off, praying against this self-righteousness, praying uh, for the ability to discern uh, self-righteousness in ourselves, to become better at discerning self-righteousness with ourselves than we are with others, to become more sensitive to self-righteousness with us, more sensitive than when we discern it in others. We must be praying for humility and this self-awareness and this soul awareness in regards to this. Pray Romans 8, 1 through 11 very, very often. You know, when when we fail at living the way that we know that we should be living, let me encourage you, don't change what God says. When you fail at the Christian life, don't modify what God expects. Don't reduce the requirement. Don't reduce the demands. Instead, repent. 
Instead, run to Jesus. Run to the cross. Throw yourself onto Jesus and rest in His finished work, not your ability to perform. Trust in His ability. Trust in His ability to live the righteous requirement for you as you in your place. Don't change what's required. Embrace the fact that Jesus nailed it, that he perfectly, he perfectly earned what was required for you. He fulfilled that for you. So ask God for, to, to, to strengthen the inner person that's in you now. Strengthen the Spirit of God that is in you in order to help you better fight the drift in your sin. Pray for this strength. Pray for the ability through God working in you to not be so easily overtaken by sin, uh, to be tricked by sin. Pray for this. Ask God to show you the truth, the truth about you and the truth about Him. As for this religious ruler, perhaps he felt like he could obey the law outwardly, but his heart wasn't right with God. And again, we see the outside. At best, we can discern certain little things on the inside, but God knows all this completely. Knowing this man, Jesus says this. He knows this man, knows his heart. He says in 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, and I wonder how Jesus said this. This is another one of those moments. He's like, well, I've obeyed these my whole life. Well, there's one, just one thing. One thing I would work on if I were you. Jesus says, there's one thing that you still lack. There's one thing that you need. Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you're going to have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. When this wealthy young ruler claimed to have obeyed all these, Jesus began to dig a little bit. How about this? How about you sell all your stuff? Turn all your assets into cash and give that away to poor people and then come and follow me. He would have to do that first before he followed, because until then he was following his riches. Jesus knows that this gets at this man's heart. He knows that this would require trust and the generosity to flow from this man's heart that's not there right now. His refusal to do this shows that his heart isn't interested in following Jesus, not at least at the same level it's interested in his wealth and his riches. He was the center of his affections. Not God, not the kingdom of God. His riches were at the center of his affections. His world revolved around his wealth. And Jesus essentially says, why don't you leverage what you have for the kingdom? Don't just give up your treasure. Invest that into others. But then here's a problem we face when we try making it to heaven without humbly surrendering and trusting God. Is you can't follow Jesus as your treasure when you're tethered to the treasure of your own life. You can't follow Jesus as your treasure when you're tethered to the treasure and the pursuit of your personal pleasure. You can't. You can't follow Jesus as your treasure when you're tethered 
to your life goals being what's going to set you free. You can't follow Jesus as your treasure when you're tethered to your own way. You can't do it. He says, follow me. He says, deny yourself. He says this time and time again through the Gospels. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You can't follow him unless you've taken up your cross and denied yourself. And the truth is, we hear this and we walk away sad. We want to follow, but we believe we can do it without denying ourselves. There's got to be a way, right? Like, there's got to be a way that I can follow Jesus and still live for this stuff over here, right? To truly follow in the way that Jesus is saying follow and understanding treasure, you can't. It's not Christianity. You cannot deny yourself. You cannot follow Jesus without denying yourself. You've got to deny yourself in order to follow Jesus or else you're still following you. He didn't come here and tell you that he was here to follow you. And there's so many Christians that complicate the Christian life by looking at Jesus saying, I want you to save me and follow me. But Jesus says, I've come to save you, now follow me. He demands that we follow him, and he gives us good reason why, because he dies for us, and he loves us. Therefore, he has the right to say, follow me. Give me all your hopes for your better life that you're after. Give that to me. Trust me with it. Greater comfort, more money, being able to have a child, to have a happy marriage, moving on from the darkness of your past or healing from a physical disease, a possibility of being married, freedom from addiction. In our pursuit of these things, are we seeking Jesus? Are we truly after God as our treasure? Or is Jesus and God the mere means that's going to get us these things? I'm going to follow Jesus because I believe if I follow Jesus that all this and this and this is going to happen. When that doesn't happen, you view Jesus as a jerk because he didn't work the way you wanted him to work. That's him following you. Of course that's sad. Of course that's heartbreaking. Of course that's difficult. That is not the way that he ever said it was going to work out. One thing you lack. Give these up. Give them away. Trust these deep things. Trust these significant things. Trust them to the Lord and follow Him. You want all these things. Of course you do. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Then you will find something bigger and better along the way. You will find life. You will find purpose and meaning. And some of those things you're longing for may come along with it. Some might not. But when you've got true life, there's a trust there that he knows best and that he's working out a plan that simply you just don't understand. And that's what's so difficult and yet remarkable about the Christian faith is that it is that. It's faith. What is it that you so desperately are desiring? What is it that you're longing for? Like when you have time to 
kind of turn it off and just chill. Like, what do you daydream over? What do you process and think through? What is it that's true of you that you pride yourself in when others make you feel stupid? When others make you feel uh, less than? What is it in your mind that you go to that's like, well, at least I have this. So at least I'm not like that. In other words, like when your value or your worth comes into question, what is it that you find internal? Like what do you find yourself pointing to? When someone shows up more impressive and they get applause, you're like, well, hmm. Well, I'm an honest person and they probably cheated to get that. So what is it that you're pointing to? Your riches? You hear this sort of thing and you walk away sad. What is it, your talent or being recognized as having that talent? You hear this and you walk away sad. Is it your beauty? You hear this and you walk away sad. Is it you being better than others in similar ways? You hear this sort of message and you walk away sad. What is that one thing? Again, this echoes of take up your cross and follow me. Sacrifice your confidence in your doing and your owning and having and just trust that to me and follow me. Find your worth in me, not your coins, not your good behavior. Find your worth in me and follow me. Sell your earthly riches to gain what can't be purchased with money or all you're doing or all the things you're not doing. Gain eternal life. Like he says in Luke 12, be rich towards God. Invest what's been given to you. Invest that in others. Don't don't leverage it just to continue to sort of propagate this building of your own kingdom and your own worth and your own value and your own significance to impress more people. Use it to bless others. Give your life to Jesus and then live your life open-handedly, extending your hands towards others, giving away what was yours. And in doing so, you'll see that your life is not your own and those things are not your own and you'll be free You'll be able to rightly engage in those pursuits, to rightly leverage the wealth that God's given you when it's not your master. Everything changes when Jesus is your treasure. This is the evidence of a changed heart. One thing you lack, Jesus says, and I believe he was pointing at a changed heart. And and the, the stinginess that's there in that man while he walks away sad is... He realizes that his hope is in his money and his heart has not been changed. Well, what's the one thing that's keeping you from following Jesus? What's the one thing that, that keeps you walking out of this warehouse every Sunday sad? The one thing you simply can't let go of like a little kid and trust Jesus with. I ask that you confess this to God right now in prayer, that one thing. Just admit it to him that this is so hard to let go of. It's so hard. It's like, God, I'll trust you with my eternity, but, but this relationship or having this, if you don't give me this, you're a jerk. What is that one thing? You know, it's easy to kind of have faith. In some ways, it's easy to have faith in the, in the big stuff. It's hard when it's stuff that's so attached to our heart. It's like God can handle eternity. But I'm going to work 
until I die to see that I get this. Because if I get this, I'm going to be somebody. What's that one thing? Right now, just take a, a few seconds, formulate those words into a prayer, and acknowledge that to God that this is, honestly, you're seeing this as this is your treasure. What's that one thing? Confess it to him and ask him to become that treasure in your heart and acknowledge that you're giving it to him. You're surrendering it to him. Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. Whatever that one thing is right there, how difficult it is for those who place their identity in blank, how difficult it is for them to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, one thing I'm really thankful for with this religious ruler here is he clearly understood Jesus. Do you see that? He understood Jesus. He heard Jesus loud and clear. He did not do what so many have done, and that's to hear Jesus say things like this and think they can still do what they want to do to be happy. He heard Jesus. How difficult it is for those who find their worth and their value in the things of this world, how difficult it is for them to enter into the kingdom of God. We'll only enter into the kingdom of God with empty hands and humble and open hearts. He says in verse 25, it's easier for a camel. This is a popular cliche. First century Jerusalem. I know you probably haven't put this out on Twitter lately. But it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? He said, well, what's impossible with man is possible with God. Here's clear proof that it is extremely difficult for people whose hearts are set on their riches or anything else as their treasure to enter into the kingdom of God. Anything other than Christ's righteousness. In fact, it's about as easy as for a camel to literally go through the eye of a needle. Indeed, it's impossible for any people to save themselves. Although we can't overcome on our own our sinful hearts by ourselves, the gospel tells us that God can and God will. He will intervene. He will step in in order to save those who are responding to his call. Jesus says it is impossible. Who can be saved? It is impossible for man to be saved. It's impossible for man to be saved by man and through man. Your dollar can't save you. Your stocks can't save you. Your reputation can't save you. Your charities can't save you. Your religion can't save you. The performance of your little Johnny on the baseball team can't save you. The good things that you do, the righteous living that you have can't save you. Your obedience can't save you. Your talent can't save you. Your beauty can't save you. Your humor and sarcasm can't save you. Your running from God can't save you. Your resources can't save you. Nothing by man, nothing through man can be done or said or not done in order for you to be saved. Mankind 
cannot save. You cannot save yourself at all. That is why self-righteousness does not work. It is a liar. It is a cheat. And it causes people to go to hell for an eternity because they bank on themselves being good enough. They don't deny themselves. They don't cling to Christ and embrace His righteousness. It is impossible to be saved. But through God, because of Jesus Christ, the otherwise impossibility has been made a possibility. What was impossible now becomes possible. What was unavailable to us now is available to us. What we need and could never get, God has brought to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ, giving us His righteousness. Galatians 2 says it this way, Know that a person is not justified by works of the law. There's nothing you can do to be justified. There's no amount of good living that will justify you. A person is not justified by the works of the law. They are justified through faith in Jesus Christ So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, not by our works, but by faith in Christ. Not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And I love what Titus, the way that Paul puts it to Titus in chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us. But he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Now, he's not saying he didn't save you because of your rebellion. He was like, no, not because of your good works, your works in righteousness. He saved us not because of your works in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Things you cannot manufacture, my friend. It is only the power of God. The Holy Spirit coming upon you. The Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified, made righteous by His grace, we might become heirs, recipients, inherit. Remember, what do I do to inherit the kingdom of God? We now can become heirs, inheriting this eternal life. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Answer, believe Jesus. Trust in Jesus Christ and His righteousness alone. Well, then who can be saved? Anybody, so long as God does the saving. Anybody can. Otherwise, it's impossible. But today, friend, you can be saved by asking God for mercy, believing Jesus, trusting in Jesus Christ, and not your performance, not your righteousness, but Christ's performance and Christ's righteousness. And in closing this conversation with Jesus, there's such a a sweet moment here with Peter, the, the voice of the disciples, the spokesman of the disciples, and he's considering these words of Jesus, and he says, well, We've left our homes and followed you. Like we've, we've given up our lives to follow you. Is this the way that you're seeing it? Are we going about this the right, the right way? We want eternal life. We want to, to follow you. We want to deny. Are we denying? We're denying ourselves, right? Like I just see this as such a sweet moment with Peter. 
And then Jesus promises that those who have counted the cost of discipleship and are prepared for the sacrifices involved in being a disciple, that they they will receive blessings in the church community. They will receive blessings in the world to come. He says, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life sacrificing these things. What is it that you've sacrificed? What is it that you've released or let go of in an effort of pursuing God? Every Christian has this. Every single Christian. To be a Christian, you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. What have you denied yourself? What have you, like what is that taking up your cross? What is it letting go of? What have you denied yourself? Or or are you still holding on your reputation? Are you still trying to follow Jesus but also follow your wealth? Are you still pursuing Jesus as your treasure but also your righteousness as your treasure? Are your expectations for how you thought life would be at this point? Is that something you're having to process? Or have you come to Jesus like a little baby, trusting him with your whole life? Well, in closing, I want us to think on that one thing. I want you to think through that one thing. One thing you lack. Think through it this way. Think through it and and answer this yourself. Like, I matter because I have. I feel like I'm, I'm important. I feel like I matter more than others maybe because what? Or I would matter more once I had. Once I can get this, I think I'll be happy. Once I get this relationship taken care of. If I could just get married. If I could just have a growing influence. If people could just see me for who I really am. If I could change people's perception of who I am. Who who they think I am. I think I'd be really happy. Your children. Getting noticed by the right people. You know... Essentially, in thinking this way, let's say if you had enough money, then, then you'd be happy. You're asking those pennies to give you eternal life. You're asking them to shoulder the weight of your value and significance and worth. That's what you're doing. That relationship, that marriage, that's an awful big weight to carry into a marriage. Is that that marriage is now going to save your life. No spouse can, can take that. What if removed from you would make you feel less significant? This young ruler, wealthy man, he placed most of his identity and his possessions and his money. Where's that for you? Practically, where's this for you? What do you point to in order to show others, but mainly yourself, that you matter? One thing you you lack. Friends, give this to God. Surrender this to Him. Be encouraged with this. Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. His righteousness, not your own. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. 
all these things will be added to you. We'll work through all these other things. But first, deny yourself. Trust them to Jesus. And follow Jesus. Ask him to help you reorient the priorities. So long as you're pursuing him as your treasure and you're seeking to truly deny yourself to follow him. The Christian life is difficult enough. Do not complicate it more by trying to live two lives at the same time. That's why he said, deny yourself, follow me. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the table this morning to remember your son Jesus, help us rest in his finished work. Father, help us trust you like a baby. Lord, help us cling not to our riches or anything else, but help us cling to the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us learn to draw our identity and worth from what you declare over us because of Christ fulfilling the righteous requirement for us. Spirit of God, be with us as we pray as we share in this time today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.